Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store. All right, welcome back to the Detroit is Different podcast studios. As you know, always on the grind, grind ass. Shout out to the people that do this, that we do, you know, in the neighborhood. When we talk about community, community development, this is somebody that is a professor, an attorney, a friend to the community. So I don't even know if I want to say uh, doctor, lawyer. <laughs> Everyone wants to call me doctor. Just call me Just call me Mama Aaron. That's what I prefer. Mama Aaron, um, how you feeling today? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. All right. So you've been a guest definitely since uh, connecting to the African Center Education Workshop right. Series that uh, GMAC uh, put a lot of energy into. But uh, shout out to Alkibalon Village. Yeah, it's still uh, moving on that. So oh, um, we, we can, we can talk about that. We can talk about that a little bit. Just that effort and you know what how we're moving on that and, and want to get other people involved if they're interested in you know revitalizing African centered education here in the city so most definitely um mm. and, and many other things but right. let's start in the classic roots detroit story uh what brought you and your people to the city of detroit yeah um thank you so uh, i was my parents are actually from the east coast um right. we uh my mom is from philly my dad's from new york i was actually born in new york but we moved here when i was six so my dad okay. what was the reason that your dad moved to detroit yes. Uh, he worked for GM. He was okay. my dad's also a lawyer. So shout out to my dad. Um, he and he got a job at General Motors um, as a lawyer. He was one of the first black lawyers on their legal staff, and so that was cool because he got to eventually rise up in the ranks and really have a big difference and a big say in the kinds of people that were taking on GM's cases as their outside counsel, right? Like he was eventually the general counsel. He got to say, you know, I want to make sure there are black lawyers taking our cases. I want to make sure there are women lawyers taking our cases. And that's important for a huge corporation like General Motors, right? To be, you know, to have a black person that can, you know, work on the provision of those legal services and make sure that the people that are representing the organization, representing the corporation are diverse right and so that was a big piece of so that was kind of you know what I grew up with like understanding that you know he was operating in this kind of corporate environment but always bringing you know this perspective on how do I make sure that black people and how do I make sure that women and people of color are getting the chances to shine in these rooms that they deserve um, so so New York, you moved here at six. Do you remember New York when you were a kid? Not, not really. I mean, I remember my grandparents, right, who lived there, and they, you know, they stayed there for for a while. But I, you know, I don't, I don't remember it. I remember, you know, being here. I, I've always considered Michigan to be home, right? I've always okay. considered myself to be a Michigander. My daughter is the first one to be born here, right? But, mm -hmm. um, but I, I was here. You know, I grew up here, went to Michigan, so I always Michigan was Michigan always held me, and so I always considered Michigan to be home. Okay, so uh, with that, what neighborhood? Where did you guys what neighborhood? Where did you guys move when you got here? I actually, we actually I grew up in Oakland County. Oh, okay. Where else? I grew up in West Bloomfield, mm. which is now like super black, which mm -hmm. is kind of amazing because mm -hmm. it wasn't it wasn't always like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember being like the only black kid in some of my classes and having to you know kind of navigate and deal with um, you know there's that like you're not you're not in with the white kids right but then 
you're still kind of on the outs with people who might be like, well, you're in the suburbs or you grew up this way or, you know, so you're kind of you're kind of in the middle. Um, but I mean, my mom was a big believer in the fact that, you know, I, sh I could be, you know, the first black person in whatever school this was and that I had a role and a, re a responsibility in a sense, you know, to be there and to, you know, represent what what being black could look like right and and to give them a sense of like this is not something that is foreign to you right or something that that i, that I belong here just as much as you do right and my mom was just she was really big on that and so you know i, I did that for a lot of my you know young educational career um, so so when when you connect on that from a young age your mom's perspective uh how did your mom adjust to moving to michigan because this is mm -hmm. still a very uh very different than new york yeah oh sure sure well i mean you know she taught me one of the most important things i think my mother taught me she's an ancestor now um was was about kwanzaa right and then nguzo saba and so those perspectives were really big in how she operated in life right like so even though we were in this suburb where there maybe weren't that many black people like we were always you know coming to detroit to you know go to black businesses and she was always trying to find out who are the black owned businesses that we could we could use and you know how can we you know make sure that we are tapping in with our people regardless of way where we may have ended up because of my father's job right um, and and that was so that was every day for her. I mean, so it was it was always you know Kuji Jagalia and Umoja, and these are the things that we use to you know build and and go into the world. Even though again we're in a world that may not be as black as we are um, all the time. And so so that was always a sense that I had. And it was great at Michigan even right. So at Michigan there was also a lot of black people when I was in Michigan a lot more than they're there they're now but I was still very often the only black person in a lot of my classes but it didn't bother me necessarily to you know to say well if we're talking about something that has something to do with black people we're reading a book about you know Jim Crow or we're doing this like I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna let y'all know I'm gonna tell y'all what I know and I'm gonna make sure that everybody is on point I'm gonna correct the professor respectfully if I need to um, because that you know these are if I'm in this space and there's something that I'm here to say I'm supposed to be here to say um, and so that that's and again, I, I got, you know, got that from both my parents, but definitely my mom was big on that. So, so you, you jumped in the timeline and, and you were them speaking about Michigan. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So from high school to Michigan, what, what was it about U of M that made you want to attend Michigan? Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I was, I went to uh, Mercy, which is a Catholic school um, and and so you know did did well there and so I was able to you know get some get some get a scholarship and so that was helpful um, but also you know it was it was about I, I was intrigued by the fact that Michigan was you know saying hey we want to make sure that diversity is important in our student body you know this was something that a lot of you know PWIs at the time were not necessarily getting behind or were still kind of waffling back and forth um, and, and and that was big and of course that was something that my dad knew and, and recognized on a certain level um, and, and I wanted to be close to home too I wanted still wanted to be home my mom actually passed right before I went to college so mm. I still wanted to be you know close to my father and my brother um, so we could you know do you know still you know kind of move ourselves through that that kind of very difficult time mm -hmm. um and and it was a great it was a great place i i really had a very i always feel like i had a very black experience even though michigan tends to be a very white school 
because um, we had we had a big we had a big group of black students, lots of kids from Detroit, lots of kids from you know all over the state, lots of kids from you know New York. There were a lot of black kids that I met from New York and Michigan. These were some of the first people, of course, like growing up outside of Detroit, right? You're, it's the Motor City. Everybody drives, but like there were kids from New York. They were like, I don't even have a license. They're like, because we have the subway. So you know, just you know, really interesting way to interact. Um, and, and build with with new people and some of those New York people that actually that I went to Michigan with we would end up going to law school together at Howard so. all right so so even before we move to that in that journey you mentioned that mm -hmm. your mom passed at, at you at an age where you're still young and growing yourself mm -hmm. um, what's uh, in in dealing with um, dealing with grief and what that can be like oh. uh, what layers and wrinkles do you think that added to your journey in college like at that point in time like transitioning then wow i mean i think the one of the most powerful things that i recognize you know grief doing for me was it it pushed me away again i told you i went to catholic school um and, and i had a lot of issues that was really where i solidified it was like i had questions about Catholicism or about you know Christianity and, and they weren't really being answered right in in that in that context it was like you raise your hand you ask a question but it's like oh because the Bible says so or whatnot and so you know I was I was already really troubled with that um, and I think you know the passing of my mother kind of pushed me more to like well we'll look for something that that makes more sense in terms of understanding your relationship with the divine um, and that eventually would really push me that and again my mother's uh, teaching of Kwanzaa teaching of Kwanzaa would really push me to African African spirituality right and so that I think is probably the most powerful shift and it took a long time you know I became a mother in between that time um, there are a lot of other things that, that you know changed my politic and moved things along but I always I always felt that there was more to it than what I was what I had known and what I had been told um, and it was, but it was after her passing, but with the lessons that she imbibed in me, right, that I kind of came to where I am now, uh, which is really beautiful. So as you speak about these lessons and, and being drawn more towards seeing uh, a, uh, a sense of spirituality that's more in line with your consciousness that, that spoke more to your soul, um, how did you even go about a journey like that beginning at such a young age? Mm. Um, I mean, I just I just always knew that, you know, spirit never dies. You know, there was always and I, I didn't again, it wasn't necessarily something that I was seeing in front of me or reading, you know, and, and, and I will, you know, I give credit, you know, to to Michigan and a lot of the folks that I met there too. all kinds of, you know, discussions and conversations and thought processes that, you know, were brought up by different experiences that that I had there. But I mean, when I really started to like crystallize some of these things and pull them together um, was absolutely when I, you know, when I was becoming, you know, a mother. Um, I was a stepmother before I was a mother and, and then I became a mother myself. Um, and, 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 you know, when you're looking at your child, you're looking at children that are entrusted to you. You know, it, 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 it kind of changes. You're like, I, I want to figure this out and I want to know, I want to understand 
how to explain it to them so that they so that they know who they are right because you you know all the other things that i've you know that i've learned through you know through law through practice of law through you know all the critical race theory stuff all of that it it, it kind of broke down a lot of the things that i was either taught or that were taught in in traditional school right and so um you know all of that kind of it I think it crystallized into like we ha I have to be able to teach my baby, you know, what what who she is and who she comes from. Because I know she's not going to get that from a traditional schooling environment. Right. I know she's not necessarily going to get that even from from other other folks. Right. Folks who we may love and respect, but she may not get that there. And so in order to really, you know, be connected again to that spirit that's inside of all of us that that never dies and connects us to, you know, our folks in the motherland, our folks that are in the ground here, our folks that did work here so that we could, you know, sit here and have this conversation. Right. All of those answers. Ancestors. I mean, they're, they're, that's such an important grounding piece for me that brought me to, you know, the Africa to African spirituality and the and the kind of the pantheon of things that I that I practice and, and participate and teach my daughter about now. Okay. And now I guess we can transition a little bit to that journey to Howard University. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Do you go to Howard immediately after U of M? I did. Okay. Uh, what drew you to Howard's law school? Oh, man. Um, I want to give a, a shout out to Dr. Ronald Woods. So he was my professor at Michigan. Um, he taught a, a class called Law, Race, and Historical Process. So, like, what does that mean? But a lot of that law, race, and historical process is very much what critical race theory is, right? And so he taught us about the road to Brown, right? And it's funny. I teach my students now at Howard, my pre-law students, that Brown is, like, the pinnacle of like you know supreme court jurisprudence when it comes to race and and black people and like our relationship with america right but brown didn't just happen overnight like thurgood marshall didn't just show up and argue brown and now you know we're taking down 60 years of jim crow right or at least legally um that was a it was a strategy it was a process and so charles hamilton houston who was the vice dean of howard at the time um, they wouldn't let him be the dean because he was black um and again because you know howard was still a school that was you know created for black Black people but there were still white people who were in charge um, but he was the kind of, kind of very much the architect there are some other students of his you know Polly Murray um, Spotwood Robinson you know other Howard Law alums who were a part of kind of pulling together this strategy to go to different jurisdictions and get these different you know cases on the record also questioning the segregation the continued segregation particularly of schools right and so once all the and we, we operate in a system of precedent, our legal, our legal system is a precedential system. So once the Supreme Court makes a decision, that's the law for everybody. Right. And so getting these different cases around the country in different in different jurisdictions brought it kind of to a head where it was like, OK, because the Supreme Court can still choose if they want to take cases or not. They, they don't have to. And of course, that's a much bigger problem now than it was then. But, you know, the Supreme, it, it put it to a place. Sometimes you got to make sure that different courts are making de decisions that are in opposite of each other because then the supreme court has to solve the problem right if you're just if there are just things out here or people are just bringing cases to the supreme court the supreme court can say uh eh, you know we don't want to hear that case this term um but when when you got the first circuit saying yes and the seventh circuit saying no right these are the appeals courts or 12 appeals courts around the country when you got those different courts saying different things and the supreme court's like well we got to step in on this all right now 
all right for everybody watching i know you probably got deep into like feeling like you're watching a um you're watching a director's cut of like uh the deepest law legal counsel type <laughs> thing so <laughs> what aaron's speaking about in my in my own detroit is different interpretation. there you go first off charles houston was a phenomenal attorney mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and it's funny my my one of my one of my professors at Henry Ford Community College introduced us to like she have us watch a lot of old documentaries nice. and one of them was on attorney Charles Houston. Oh. Attorney Charles Houston helped establish a blueprint to establish precedent around the nation that argued against the whole separate but equal can't exist because certain places in certain jurisdictions, as Aaron was saying, didn't mm -hmm. even have a place and space for a black person to study this or study that so oh. it's like okay mm -hmm. it's no black school for you to be an engineer in west virginia or law schools right uh, well, a lot I'm of them were law yeah a lot of them were law schools uh, many of them you were know? law schools but mm -hmm. so we're gonna send this black person there and they're gonna force you to be in this class so you'll see like all these classic pictures of like the black person sitting mm -hmm. outside the classroom yeah. uh learning law while every all the white law students are inside the classroom mm -hmm. And and you use this as a precedent to break it because it's like precedent, which basically means that if it's happened before, it's legal standing, quote unquote, in our nation right. to happen again. Yeah. But you have to establish precedent. So this was over the span of decades, almost, that Charles Houston established the precedent to lead up to the case for yeah. Brown versus the Board of Education. Mm -hmm. So Thurgood Marshall at the time could give the argument that there's already legal standing and precedent that this is happening in the nation anyway. So really the only thing that's wrong about this is that this district does not want to accept what the truth is okay. of this having no legal standing. But it needed to be orchestrated and blueprinted and that is right. attorney right. Houston who is one of the anchors of of definitely what has become what we label as civil rights law right but, desegregation is um, just jurisprudence yeah but also just a dynamic thinker um and help you know such as as we see the ripples of his work there have brought you to Howard. Absolutely. 100% him. You know, just a big shout out again to, you know, Damon Keith, uh, who's here for you from Detroit. He went to uh, to Howard Law as well. One of the things they teach us at Howard that Charles Hamilton Houston said was that a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society, right? So making sure that, again, as black lawyers, as brown lawyers, students knew that you have, you know, you have a, an understanding. Judge Keith talked about this a lot. You have a knowledge and an understanding of the Constitution that necessitates that you use that you know for 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 black liberation right to make sure that to hold the whole our nation accountable right i mean everyone talks about that right like martin luther king talks about this everyone talks about you know is america going to be held up to its creed right and so you making sure that you're utilizing this knowledge this wisdom to you know to do that and to and to push that forward and not just to you know again be he called it a parasite on society right what are you doing with that knowledge to make sure that you're utilizing it to you know to support our people what was the uh so the other lens of that is chocolate city dc and much yep. has changed in dc from the time that you were there mm -hmm. what was the culture like when you when you touched down there how did you feel it how, how was the pulse of that 
Uh, well, I mean, one of the things that I worked on a lot when I was in D.C., so, you know, after I graduated and, and was just practicing, um, it, it was the big piece was it was criminal justice reform, right? So we were working a lot on criminal justice initiatives, making sure that there are all these things in D.C., and I worked in Congress, too. I worked for Congresswoman Norton, and so I learned a lot of these things when I worked for her. Um, you know, DC, like D.C. federal prisoners, for example. D.C. doesn't have a federal prison anymore. There used to be one in Virginia that they all used to go to, but now that's closed down. And so now, unlike other, you know, federal prisoners who are, you know, mostly housed in federal facilities in the states where they're from, D.C. prisoners are farmed out all over the United States, wherever, you know, the, fed, the feds want to send them because they don't have a prison there. And so, you know, trying to facilitate those um, family, you know, family connections, the people that want to stay connected to their loved ones and they're incarcerated, they're somewhere else. We were also working a lot on D.C. jail. D.C. jail has had all kinds of, you know, problems and um, didn't have, you know, education in the, in, the, in the system for a long time. So we were working on that. And I think the biggest thing, of course, D.C., long before many other jurisdictions, uh, didn't le well, decriminalize marijuana. It wasn't, it wasn't legalized, but it was decriminalized, but it was specifically because the ACLU in D.C. Did a, did a study that found specifically that white folks were being, or no, black folks were being arrested at double the rates for marijuana possession as white folks in D.C., which is mostly black. So, of course, it, and so it was from a racial justice frame. The very specific thing that was asked on the ballot when it went, you know, when D.C. voted on it was, you know, about racial justice and saying we are acknowledging that the arrest rates are so skewed and we can't fix it, right? Like we, we've done all these other things to try and fix it, to control for it. We can't fix it. The only thing that we can do is decriminalize marijuana and it worked. So, I mean, you know, so that was, you know, so all of those things were really exciting, you know, during that time. And just, it was, you know, it was just a really important Two, I mean, I guess there was a Supreme Court case, Heller, came out, which is the first Second Amendment case in a very long time. D.C., like New York, some other jurisdictions have always, you know, said just no guns, no handguns. And, you know, the Supreme Court said you can't do that anymore. And so, you know, in a place where there is a lot of gun violence and where there are a lot of concerns about, you know, those issues of concerns about, you know, gun gun ownership, et cetera, et cetera. You know, those were those were some of the big things that happened. And, and, and a lot of that was based on, you know, crime, there was crime that was going there was crime rates were going up but gentrification was also going up a lot of folks were dc as you said looks a lot different now than it used to um, and i was so shocked when i came back to detroit how much detroit reminded me of what dc about gentrified dc looked like at least downtown like i was like oh wow i was like this is they're trying to like do the same thing and they want everything everything looks like this kind of like cookie cutter downtown like down to like the gucci store right we're about to get the gucci store which is you know that's that's exactly in dc it's this big like shopping center downtown now um and and it's sad because in dc now detroit of course is one of, is extremely expansive there's lots of land there's lots of vacant land and that's one of the issues here that i work on now but in dc you don't have a lot of space right dc is very small dc also has a height limitation because of Congress, right? The the Capitol building is there, so you can't build taller than the Capitol building. And so you have this really difficult situation in D.C. where gentrification is literally, it's pushing people out. People, native Washingtonians, right? People who have been in D.C. for generations, black people who have been in the D.C. families, who have been in D.C. for generations, are getting pushed out into like these suburban, like Maryland and Virginia communities because they simply can't afford to live in D.C. anymore because all the property rates are sky high. Um, and, and, and I mean, that's the 
same for even myself, you know, as, as a lawyer. I mean, I was working for the government. I wasn't, you know, making the big bucks or anything. But, um, you know, it's it's not affordable for anyone, really, unless you're you're operating at your, you know, you're operating at this really high level. And that makes it difficult, not just, you know, for the black folks who have been there for generations, but also, again, for, for younger folks, for college students, for all of those people who, you know, are trying to, you know, be in D.C. and go to school or work. Um, you know, a lot of it's really hard to make all that possible. So, so you spoke to uh, Congress Member Norton. I, Congressman explain. Norton. Uh, oh explain. yeah, Congress Member Norton. I'm I'm unfamiliar. Bring yeah, no, she and, and she's still that, in Congress. I think. Yeah, no, it wasn't good. I worked in the, I worked in the Senate first, so I worked on the impeachment of a federal judge, which is very rare, but it was pretty cool. I got to you know do that for a while, and then I worked for Congresswoman Norton before I went to the D.C. government. What what uh, what district? Uh, she, she, she's just the district of DC. She has, she has one district. So she is, um, on par with, uh, like Puerto Rico, Guam. So the other, you know, U S territories, so to speak. And so depending on who's in charge of Congress, right? So if you go into a new year of Congress and there's a, a Republican majority, they usually don't, they may, they make rules and they don't allow Congresswoman Norton and, and the other delegates they call them delegates to vote. They don't allow them to have a vote in. They they might have a voting committee, but they don't allow them to vote on bills, which is important because most of them are Democrats, right? And so they're kind of shunning those votes. And so in in DC's case, if you don't have, you know, if she doesn't have a vote in that particular Congress, then there's you know there's no she's not voting on legislation. There are times when there's legislation about DC that she can't vote on, right? Which is crazy. And so it so this brings together you know the whole taxation without representation piece, right? And there's a I remember there's a board in D.C. where they have a number of, of how much D.C. residents have paid in tax without having full representation in Congress, right? So that's mm -hmm. something that she still is dealing with, but she's brilliant because she's figured out all these other ways to get her to get DC's issues in front of Congress and to make sure that DC has a voice even though she dumb sometimes doesn't have a vote which is really it's, it's just you know it takes a it's a really powerful position for her to be in um, and you know she down to I think there they almost got DC to be a state I want to say it was gosh 10 years ago now um, but that's always been her big push too is DC becoming a state how how did you end up in that position um, I like I said I was I was on the Senate side, so I was I was working in the Senate and at the time, and I I think I think it's better now, but at the time, you know, it was it was really slim pickings in terms of you know black staffers in Congress, and this has been an issue. It's like you have all these. You know, of course, in the Senate, you have way less black people. I'm trying to think if there are any black people in the Senate then. I think Cory Booker might have been, right? But so you have even less, you know, black staffers on the House side. It's a little better because, you know, again, the House are selected by different districts, whereas the senators come from, there's two from every state. Um, and so I just, I had the opportunity. I was looking for a CBC member. I said I wanted to work for a member of the Congressional Black Caucus. I wanted to be involved with, you know, with understanding how the Congressional Black Caucus operated, especially, and I'm trying to say that I think that when I was in Congress, it was Republican controlled, right? So I wanted to, you know, be affiliated with an office that was kind of battling that and fighting those battles every day and trying to, you know, make sure that their measures are getting before the Congress, they're met, that their bills are getting passed, that they're getting the consideration that they need, even at the committee level. Because even now, I mean, it can be hard. Like, there's the, the George Floyd bill has been sitting in the Senate forever and hasn't had, you know, hasn't had a hearing. You know, it's like you, just because something is there doesn't mean that the people who are in charge are going to decide, right, that they're going to they're going to give it a chance. So as this is going on, 
just life what's happening in life family here detroit are, are you are you like entrenched in your roots there in dc what's happening just mm -hmm. from the personal perspective yeah. as you're in such a busy i guess professional space yeah at the time? i mean i've always really tried to i want my work to reflect my values right and, and so i've always tried to make sure that the the work that i was doing was also connected to what i wanted to be doing you know personally and professionally which is you know which has always been you know for for black liberation i always i wanted to be a lawyer because i thought that that was going to be the best way you know for me to you know push forward and make sure that you know we didn't have all these all these black folks in jail you know to go back on you know the war on drugs like these are the things that were happening you know when i was a child and i and i i, I could see this and i was like this is terrible. Like, I want to be in a position to change that. And so personally, I mean, it was great being in D.C. because a lot of my Howard Law colleagues were still there. We were able to collaborate on a lot of these, you know, criminal justice reform measures, you know, that I, that I talked about. Um, I also I did I, I, I you know I met my 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 daughter's father. You know, we started a family. We were starting a family. He has children, so I was doing a lot with his children and so that really helped also to kind of socialize me as a as a mama right and help me to understand i would take them with me to my naacp meetings or whatever i was doing because i wanted them to be able to see you know these are the things that that our parents that parents and adults do and this is us coming together to try to work to make you know the situation of our people better and you know these are things that yeah we might have to do it after work or after school and we might be tired but it's important you know and i and so that that that, that politic was really it was a good thing for me to be able to to you know have those children entrusted to my care you know so that I could I could also teach that to them and then eventually teach it to my daughter so uh, so this that value system of bringing basically the the extension of your value system had your professional and personal life kind of connect and intersect very much so. Uh, with with everything so so being that immersive in something mm -hmm. was was natural for you then, I mm -hmm. Naturally. Um, and, and then these altruistic um, initiatives that you're taking on can be, you know, that that's late hours of work. That's, that's a lot of focus. Like, did you ever, like, during that time, how did you develop to say, okay, let me, this may not necessarily be the best space for this type of work. Mm -hmm. What made you pivot from that political congressional space to something mm. else. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, I started to learn the exact things that, you know, again, I was, I was taught in part by, or at least to see them, right. The things that I was taught by, you know, Dr. Woods in my, you know, critical race class and the things that I, I teach my students now just about, about the government and how the government actually functions. So mm -hmm. once I, I worked for a judge first, and so after that I was like, I wanna make sure to work in all three branches of government, right? So I have a sense of like how to, how to really, how to work through this, right? How, to, how are we gonna make these changes that I think should be made at the government level, right? And so, you know, again, I worked in Congress, I worked for a judge, and then I worked for local government. And I mean, a lot of it is, it's, it's pretty simple. I mean, you know, in terms of America, the foundation is, is faulty, right? So we can amend the Constitution and we can, you know, 
have past Supreme Court cases. Um, but none of that matters if the foundation is is faulty, right? And it's like we hold the Constitution up as like this gold standard, right? Like everything, if it's constitutional, then it's right. But that's not that's not necessarily accurate. Um, there's there's so many things. Like look at what the Supreme Court just did to Roe. Like they could do the same thing to Brown tomorrow if they wanted to, you know? And and it's like and so, you know, when we talk about, you know, the the amendments to the constitution, when we talk about the constitution and is this the standard that that we want to hold ourselves to? And I started to learn that that it's not, right? And and so I think that was a big piece of why I started to kind of step back and say, well, I think I understood better what, you know, what people say about it's so important that we're creating our own, you know, spaces, that we're creating our own things, that we're creating, you know, the, the things that we need. We're cultivating, right? So my shirt says we're cultivating the spaces that are going to hold and support us because the systems that are in place are not, we're, well, they're not going to, right? But, and yes, we can reform them. I think I, I'm definitely someone I think we need to be working on all cylinders all the time, right? I think there's enough of us that it's like, yeah, you know, we want to be working solely and putting all of our energy into cultivating and creating the systems that we need. At the same time, there are still people languishing in prisons. There are still people, you know, really having problems with the criminal justice system. There are people who are having problems with CPS. There are people who are who are still dealing with this. And so, like, we can't just kind of divest from that and say we're only going to work on creating something new. It's like, what about the people that are still dealing with the problems it's definitely uh um and i think that that's part of the logic of of mm -hmm. the way we've been conditioned to see right. through this lens of mm -hmm. american media and even mm -hmm. one of the classic debates of, of one of your big homies my big homie uh bob malik when we were talking about <laughs> capitalism and, and mm -hmm. to me like i say i'm not as anti-capitalism but this form of capitalism is untrue because mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. a lot of it's a lot of corporate welfare that goes on yep. in our form of capitalism. Right. It's a lot of corporate influence. But in this form of capitalism, it, it presents these ideas of like everything's a zero sum game. As right. if it's either you either right or you wrong. It's either red or it's blue. Yep. It's either left or it's right. It's, and and life has so much more variations. Yep. It, things look so different. It's it's not as if one thing or the other some of it is revolution and some of it is reform right right and some of it right. is evolution like it's not uh it's not one path meets all mm -hmm. period even right. with um like here's a classic one um you know and, and it's it's interesting uh because right now i think that they're they're slamming um <laughs> You know, some of it, like I, I watch, I watch so much stuff, uh, <laughs> whether I agree or disagree, it's just interesting to see. But yeah. I'm looking at some conservative pundits uh, speak about Stacey Abrams and some of her views on mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. defunding the police and her perspective of having the security, the security details that she keeps. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, running, running in Georgia for anything as oh. a black woman, security is that's a logical thing yeah absolutely but then we get into discussions of like if police are abolished right. because that's the other thing i think a lot of times right. people are looking at defunding the police using media to change it to abolishing right. police. and some people are for abolishing police too mm -hmm. but me understanding some of the the uh shout out to amos wilson some of the um 
the hysteria and, and pain and traumas that yeah. we experience, especially in like black communities, mm-hmm. there does need to be some authoritative figure. And I'm not necessarily, mm-hmm. I'm definitely the most, I can't even think of the outside of just the, the following the protocols of calling police. That, that's the reason why, mm-hmm. but some of the traumas that exist in some of these conditions and households, absolutely. Something needs to exist. Right. I don't know what entity that is. I mean, I, but, I think yeah. I, I would love, you know, again, I, I think it's I think it's like a process. Right. So when I think of defund the police, like I also don't think that doesn't I think some people think it means immediate abolition. Abolish. Right. It's yeah, like yeah. it's over. And yeah. no, I mean, like we've talked for we've been talking forever about how police are getting thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for you know tanks and things well, in the state I would go well, well right probably millions. millions it's probably more possibly billions like uh lots even, and lots even, of money uh, like so most of detroit's budget goes to well you know obviously some of the water system but, right and then no. also also the pension and retirement and, and no nope. false ass bankruptcy no nope, uh, there you go but a lot of it goes to mm-hmm. public safety or policing right and some of this money can be diverted and used exactly in other ways that can provide that are preventative yes right that crime, step that yeah. step before the crime like 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 let's let's try to have a system where we're, where we're stopping crime before it happens and that means we're addressing the poverty line being the same as it was in like 1912 yeah. or, or whatever it is that means that we're addressing mental health in a real comprehensive holistic way you know it means that we're it means that we're looking at our schools it means that we're look i mean we're looking at you know do we do we really need Again, this is a 246-year-old document. Do we need do we need everybody to be able to have guns just because the Constitution says so? No. I, 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 Not necessarily. And, and, right? And, and, and so let's, it's, let's, it, it, it just, I, I just, there's so many things that's like, mm-hmm. we're like, well, it's in the Constitution. It's like, who cares? It's like, there are lots of things that are in the Constitution let, that aren't good. Let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Because mm-hmm. hey, I, I like it. Let's. Because technically, yeah. you know... They they say that, and this is another one of those zero sum game yep. things that, that they force us to think a certain way because we're conditioned to yep. think that way. It's either it's a living document or it needs to be interpreted as read. The reality is you can't interpret it as read. Well, you can because they do it all the time. They try. They you know what I'm saying? That, and it, and you it's can't you know because but it doesn't make sense. It's like it's like the Bible. It's we like, we we, we say we haven't we we say we've disespoused all of these things right we say that we hate slavery right we say that we hate you know all uh we we hate women being not being able to make their own decisions right we say that we're we're getting rid of those things we say that we recognize that those things are wrong we say that we hate taking land from you know native you know sovereign nations we say that we hate all of these things and then we continue to do them and so it, it's like you know that just because something is there in a two hundred again two hundred forty six year old document doesn't mean that it we should always be looking to that document for guidance in a society that it that claims to be completely different and that's my thing it's like we're gonna claim to be different or we're gonna claim we're gonna distance ourselves from these things that you know are we're core to the founding of our nation if we're honest with ourselves if we're gonna say that we're distancing ourselves from that then why how can we not distance ourselves from the document that they created and and, and to me and to me and i give this argument oftentimes like america was established 
first off, like my dad will say, like it's a it's a <laughs> it's a criminal immigrant prize. Yep. But Ooh. the reality of it's, it's stolen land, it's stolen labor, stolen and in people. reality, even for the argument of the Brits or whatever, like it was a sto- the whole taxation without representation. It was it was mm-hmm. lending provided through what was known as quote unquote the 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 key tribes that made up yep. whiteness so like britain england and some of germany that was not paid back so this right. whole right this whole idea of uh paul revere running through town saying the british are coming the british are coming it was really <laughs> like you know if you if 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 you have somebody in your house and they like hey the landlord here so yep. we ain't about to pay him go on and get your gun shoot them in the face right, yep. so I, I know that sounds like a real raw ass version of what happened but that's american history yep. it's the landlord came mm-hmm. britain give us our money america said hey guess what we got enough money from portugal and all these other places that say they want sugar they want from cotton, slavery right they want uh, they want access to what we doing over here. It looks like France is out with this Louisiana purchase. So yep. we got enough to turn around and say, we just going to kill you. Yeah. You know, so that was the, the, the tenant. So like, really you have stolen labor, stolen land, and also an unpaid debt to stolen their people. nations the, of European nations. And I'm not saying that Britain got its money from not ill gotten I mean, gains. A legal term for you, Ooh, uh, there you go. as well but it's still like the premise of this nation is built as i always say it's designed for white men yeah. with landowners right yep and business and, and those the that's the basis of our government away, system absolutely the further you get away from being a white man with businesses and property the more the design of america working for you doesn't function the same and even all the public goods so like even uh public schools like when people say public schools were great public school was a design from carnegie because you had to switch off a agricultural class with really a lot of white employees uh uh, white labor to an industrial class so the best way to where are the kids gonna go i'm at work provide productivity is so you you gotta teach them something so yeah. they can they can learn to read because if more people get steel dropped on them i lose labor and i lose uh money in this person then died in the steel mill yeah. again or the coal mine so why don't we teach them how to read so they can read the instructions so they can be a productive worker yeah. it's, but even the whole yeah. idea you know you know of all these public goods public schools yeah. hospitals hospitals public was another facilities. one of those things that the public good was never really the foundation right. of it though things as we say they're not as black and white mm-hmm. i think things start in a certain places and then the branches expand and they can become and they can function in different ways. Right. Like uh, the movement of, of the corporatization of public and health systems yep. cha- transitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and these. So the black hospitals that had, they were opened here, right? Many, because I, I was, that's why I was, many, Baba Jamal was talking about that, right? Many, lots of black hospitals black because, hospitals. because they, because we needed, we needed health care, right? And we needed reliable health care. We couldn't just wait to go to another hospital and then we'll let, we'll go take you over there. You know, it's like, so, you know, these things were, were have been cultivated and created because the system that was created was not created to work for us. And, it's and, like, and you know, design. Yeah. The, the example. Exactly. I use is you can you can use water as antifreeze, <laughs> but your car eventually. 
<laughs> and that's what mm-hmm. we are as people here. You yeah. know, like I say, shout out Amos Wilson, Black Power. I mean, mm-hmm. he's one of of theorists on it. I mean, it's different people to follow, but as sure. of now, I'm tapping into him most. But you know, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing mm-hmm. uh, and many others. But yep. but the the these theories and these ideas it's unique that you hit that pivot and i think all of us do hit Mm -hmm. pivots and awakenings so as you drew away from politics what did you end up venturing into oh it was it was it was family motherhood um and i and i guess one of the other things i i I neglected to mention the um at that time i also i did realize you know that i needed you know some kind of other outlet you know for for myself and so myself and, and some folks founded a um, interfaith spiritual artist collaborative, right? Where so we started to get to come together and make music. And the objective was we would perform at like protests and different, you know, we were kind of like artivists, right? We would, you know, cultivate and create spaces where we could come together and share our music or share, you know, our art in furtherance of the values that we shared, right? Even though we were these interfaith people and it was, you know, it was people, mostly people of color, but, you know, it was people who were coming from different backgrounds, different perspectives different faith you know different faiths different values but we could all come together around art right and and create these things and so that was that was shout out to the sanctuaries dc that was a really beautiful space um where where i was able to also again do some more of that of that activist work but really again it was it was becoming it was becoming a i was a stepmother first right and it was i had these four children in my care and so you know it was it was like how can i make sure that i am feeding you know the important parts of themselves because i I could see kind of for the first time because I have a younger brother, but we're very close in age. So there weren't any like young children that I was taking care of when I was like growing up, for example. And so this was the first time, you know, they're coming home. They're telling me their homework. They're telling me about what the teacher said to them about this. Like they're talking to me about, you know, and it was like, oh, you know, like there are really important kind of, you know, values that, you know, I want to espouse or that I want to make sure that you know about how how important you are, what a wonderful person you are and the truth about you know your greatness and and know you're not always necessarily seeing that now i had two i had two stepchildren that were going to an african-centered school in dc and so that was really great so they were getting kind of all of you know the beautiful african-centered you know the at halloween was we're dressing up as our ancestors right all of those things right so that was good but then i had there were older i had two older boys that were in another that were in you know public schools and so you know dealing with them you know in you know understanding why they're learning you know one thing in school but it's like i know that's not true right and and so being able to like hold space for children to have those critical realizations about the things the places where they are and what they're seeing they should be told about themselves versus the reality that they're not taught necessarily like in a school setting all the time but that's so important to like give them that that self-image and that wisdom and that knowledge so I, i have this question too because in this same zero-sum game of thinking because mm-hmm. that's where america goes so if, yeah. you've, if you yeah. have zero-sum game it's kind of like you just either it's either option a or option b yeah you know um another one of those things as a woman that um, mm. you know educated uh attorney mm. uh legal experience in government in a space where nothing but government exists Mm. You also have an arc of, uh, as I've been hearing, like, there's like, you know, sometimes people say, like, that can almost be a negative term, strong black woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the, the, the burden, quote unquote, behind strong black woman is this idea of being mother, being mm. business owner, 
being employee, being daughter, being friend, being sister, being um, like many of these roles right. at a level of like um, at a level of excellence that's mm. supposed to be like just uh, uh, not just expected, but the standard. Yeah. And you shift out politically and then pour into a family right. space which can be just as as learning for you, just yes. as, uh, you know, uh, beneficial, challenging, like uh, everything that the political space can be. Mm, right. But it's more right. of a presence of like a personal presence of mine. Right. Like, how, did you feel any of that pressure in that space? Just because I do know that that's real, you know, yeah. like because as a black woman, I, you know, as a black man. I hear this in these discussions from mm. black women with this standard of that strong black woman. Right, right. Uh, I think, you know, there, there were a couple of things. I mean, it's 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 certainly the I think the family unit um, and being a parent, you know, is not just the most important thing that I think many of us do, but it's, it's absolutely the most difficult. Um, and and so the and so that really helped me learn how to build you know, community from a family perspective, right? So I was, I've always been an organizer, right? And so I'm good at bringing people together around certain shared values and ideals. But this was the first time that it was like, okay, well, I need someone to watch my kids or like, I want to, I'm going to watch their kids or like, it's my night to have the people come, the kids who come over the babies or the, to sleep over or, and all of those kinds of things. And so, you know, I was also developing very much my African politics still. I mean, being in DC was, you know, a big, a big thing for that because I mean, DC is, you know, very, still very black, right? Like there's still like, there's still gentrification there and, and there are a lot of problems that are, you know, plaguing it just like any other urban center. But DC has a very, very strong sense of, of, of what DC is and the people that have made DC what it really is, right? Like outside of the government context. Um, and, and so that was, that was a, that was a big shift for me kind of, you know, how do I still, you know, how do I still do my activist work, but I have these things to do at home as a mother? Like, are you supposed to do both of those things? You know, can you do both of those things well? Right. I think there's there's a lot of, you know, thought about. And even for me, again, as a mother myself, sometimes I realize it's like I'm doing more than one thing and that's good. But maybe I'm not doing them both as well as I could be if I was doing them one at a time, if that makes sense. Um and so it, it it can be it can be challenging because you know again I have I had the I had the privilege of being able to to go to law school and to you know get this education and again to to be a social engineer and and understanding what that means and what you know my role is in 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 playing in in working with others towards our ultimate liberation right and so but you know, is that the only, is that the most important thing or is family the most important thing? Like you said, this like zero sum game. And so often I do think, you know, capitalism puts us in that position where we're playing that zero sum game with each other. Right? I mean, with ourselves, you know, because it's like, well, you know, I can't do this and pay my bills or I can't do this. And, and that was one thing that, that, that was one of the reasons I came back to Detroit from DC too, because once you have a family and once you got kids, you got to, I mean, everything is Ex exorbitantly expensive anyway in DC but then once you have a family I mean that's what happens to a lot of families too they have to move out of the city and they end up going someplace else because they can't afford to continue to be in the city and do all you know take the kids to do all the things that they want to do etc cetera, etc cetera. 
And so that, you know, so I still, you know, struggle even now, um, you know, with being, you know, it, still being so involved in the activist work that I do, you know, teaching. Um, but I'm also an unschooling mother, right? Like, so I, when my child was, was born and she was a baby, um, I just, I realized I was trying to do kind of the rote curriculum stuff with her. And she was like, what are you doing? I'm not into this. And I started learning more about unschooling, right? And so this this whole idea that, you know, our children, and even think about it, if you think about, you know, our ancestors in any context, in many instances, it wasn't necessarily that there was a school, right? There might be teachers, but there wasn't a school, right? Like life is the school, right? Like what we're doing is the school. Like, so we're going here and we're doing this, or we're going to nature and we're doing this. Um, and, and, and so trying to, again, like kind of move in a way and trying to, you know, make sure that, again, my I want my daughter to know and understand that, you know, the fight for black liberation is ongoing. It's intergenerational. You know, you have the you have the baton and there's something you're supposed to pick up and do with it. Right. And so it's important that you see and understand that. Um, but but also, you know, thinking it, it caused me to think differently about you know, these systems that we have and that we say, and, and, and again, I understand again, as, as a parent, sometimes you're like, this is what I got to do. Like, I got to work. This is the job that I could get. I got to send my kid to school. I got to do this. You, you got to do what you have to do. And I think everybody goes through that. But, you know, b being able to say there might be a different way that we can start to come together around this, or like if we, if it's important enough to us to say, we want to make sure that our children are getting some kind of African-centered component. We want to make sure that our children, like that—that's the—that's a—that's the, that's the uh, inspiration for the Forest School, right? Like it's like I want my child and other Black and Brown children to understand that you have a special, unique relationship with nature as a black and brown person and that the way that you interact and and are in nature like we are we are one right like with that it's not something that separate them from us it's not something that we have dominion over right like it is something that we and our ancestors for millennia have worked in concert with and that has from that has come great civilizations and agriculture and all these things that you know people from the african continent have given to the world right it's been working in concert with nature not what they're taught in a, in a traditional schooling environment and so you say well how can I do this in a way that that's going to again imbibe this in my child how can I make sure that we're creating systems that will help our children to understand these things and and give them a space to cultivate and grow and understand that um, and, and so I can't I can't say that anything has you know, really impacted me more than, than being a mother. Like I said, even, even like I said, being, I, I say step, you know, that's just, I'm a stepchild myself. Again, I told you my mother's been an ancestor for a long time. So, you know, big shout out to my stepmom. She is super cool and I love her. I love her family. Um, and so that's just a term that I use, but th I mean, those, I mean, my, my stepchildren really also kind of pushed me, um, and catalyzed a lot of things for me in terms of like what, what, who, what is the kind of mother that I want to be? Thinking back to my, my own mother and thinking about, you know, sometimes we look, we have to look at the strong black women in our lives and say, but was this really sustainable for you? Right? Like, was this something that like you could really be doing or like, is it something that it's sustainable for me to emulate? And sometimes the answer to that question is no. Yeah. And, and, and I that's think, hard. Um, and, and, and just reassessing what value systems are. Mm -hmm. I think uh, obviously being a black man, it comes with a different yeah. lens, but that standard of strong black woman, especially when we think of 
the the divide in so many households yeah. uh with yeah. where where you know a lot of a lot of fathers aren't like even on my block you know i want to say my mm-hmm. my dad mr bestita big james time to time Junebug, but when we think of like the 25 kids over here right you know uh right the fathers weren't as present mm-hmm. you know uh so so it's a different lens right. of that barrier of what that strong black woman in in the way that it's spoken about and you know and i and i kind of like it's like i follow i, I follow how that mm-hmm. is a, a term that's endeared and definitely looked at it with pride but it also comes with another standard of possible um burden yeah as well and there's strong and there's sustainable. I, I I can't remember who I was talking to about this, but I think that, and you know, of course, you have sustainability, like from the environmental perspective, yeah. the like corporate term. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about sustainable. Like, is this something that you can reasonably continue to do and like take care of your responsibilities to yourself, right? Mm-hmm. To your family, of course, which is an extension of you, but it's an extension that takes real effort, time, work, and energy, right? And 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 so how do we again that's that's one of the beautiful things too about cultivating and building things for ourselves because we can start thinking about that. We can say like not this is what I can get from society this I'm, I'm gonna take what i can get we can say what what is sustainable what's real right like what we, we can look at like what actually works for us in our communities that uplifts the things that are the most important to us and 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 move on that right like as as opposed to just accept continuing to because i mean again there there are always going to be some of us in times when we're going to have to just accept certain things the way that they are but i think we can always also be thinking, working, plotting, strategizing, moving on like, but this is what we know that we need. And like, let's keep, let's keep doing what we can to, to get there. I mean, it might take a while, but like, let's keep doing what we can to get there. I, I, I love the way that you presented that. Uh, and, and, and then even getting deeper into that space, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's quality of life. Yeah. And the quality of life's mm-hmm. matching where the value sets are, mm-hmm. because sometimes, mm-hmm you'll have the perceived quality of life, but it's not matching with the value sets. And then you see uh, imbalance express itself in different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you know, it's rare. I shout out other podcasts, but like in, in something uh, (laughs) I was listening to with Mike Tyson and he was talking about (laughs) in jail, he found more peace than being, you know, the multimillionaire boxer that he was outside Mm. because it was less interaction. It was less noise. It was Mm. less this standard of who, as we think of the character created in Iron Mike Tyson and, you know. That's powerful. Now, this is such a unique, and he even said, like, you know, obviously to find peace there, you you already have a different balance going on from traumas and life and everything of, Mm. you know, losing his mother and all the his story. But it's unique that when we think of where this balance and where peace can stand and what that is, and as you Mm. say, the real sustainability and really just our own definition of quality of life. And as we get closer to a close, and I still have some classic Detroit is different questions, and I definitely want you to come back, uh, and which you will be uh, with your team. Yes, that's right. Yes. What are... uh, uh, projects now you, you're involved in, in in a series of different projects yes so instead of just getting into what all the projects are and you can name them okay but 
what's the motivation as you engage in things now what what motivates you now how do you how do you pick and choose where things are mm. um so that it does fit your value set so right. it does heighten your quality of life mm-hmm. oh sure um one of the most amazing things I think I did for myself. I don't want to say most amazing, but it was it was just it was a big step for me um, in my email signature. Right. I, I added something to my email signature that said, hey, you know, I'm an unschooling parent like this might impact my daytime email response time. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like that's not like a big thing, but I, I recognize that people don't necessarily they don't they don't they don't really travel with their children like I do. Like my, my daughter's with her dad now. But like she, you know, is very much involved in a lot of the things that I do. And so a lot of the things that I do, I'm always thinking about, is this some is this something that I want her to learn? Is this something that she can benefit from? And and can we be there together? Right. Like, so I'm a big, you know, a lot of my work, a big value in my work is intergenerationalism. Right. Like it's so so we, we you know, we got to be thinking about what from, you know, again, from my music, even the music that we listen to. My daughter, she gets she's so over. You know, I, I'm always listening to Bob Marley because I'm like, I know Bob Marley is not going to like drop a cuss word on you. You know what I'm saying? Like he's going to be like he's going to be chill. He's going to be talking about black liberation. He's going to be talking about uplifting you and like moving forward like these are good things um but you know all of the things that that i do very much are 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 partially i'm like well you know what is what impact does this have on on me being a mother and me transmitting this knowledge because that too is is one of i think is one of the most important values um that that i espouse is 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 not and, and you know not just for my daughter of course like she's she's in my care she chose me right and so i have you know i i i, I hold fast to that i that connection that we have but i think that there are so many things that we can do for other for for all of our black and brown children right because i think that especially like with schools again being in the school system now even though you know i teach at the college level um i just i i understand it just a little bit better and and i and you know again as a mother right and and the idea of like being the first teacher it's like you know hey how can we how can we marshal that so we can you know be the first teachers of our babies together and like how can our babies be involved in our lives so that they can kind of see what's going on i think so often like you know our kids are are somewhere else and so they don't they don't get to again they don't get to see us having meetings they don't get to see us strategizing about things they don't get to see us talking in groups you know about the things that we're going to do they don't get to see us working and so i very much kind of you know i like to be in spaces and operate you know in a way that is intergenerational from that perspective too right like not like leaving the little people behind and making sure that that they're they're present and they're there um and so you know of course when i when i joined the board of dbcfsn the detroit black community food security network that was focused on you know i also think you know again big time i tell all my students no matter how old they are how young they are i think all black children need to know how to grow their own food period like i mean it's just we you know we have no idea where this you know ship is going i don't want to say we have no idea but you know we don't know where this ship is going what they're going to be dealing with in the next generation what they're going to be dealing with seven generations down the line they need to know that's that's basic they got to know how to grow their own food so they can survive um and so so i so that was a big piece of, of getting involved with dbc fsm for me it happened to be that the board needed a lawyer right they needed someone who kind of had that legal sensibility and so that's been really great to be able to bring i, I it's really important to me too um to bring 
like I again I recognize that having a law degree and a bar card and all of those things like those things are are a privilege and so I need to be utilizing that privilege at all times to make sure that I'm I'm you know working for the continued liberation of our people right so that's why I always keep my bar card even though I don't necessarily practice but I always keep it because like so you can call me like you know if somebody's in jail you need me to go talk to somebody in jail you need me to go try to get somebody out you need me you know those things are those are things that our community always needs um, and and so those are things that I think you know again social engineers black lawyers should always be prepared to do to the extent that they can um, and so that you know I it, it feels really good to be able to utilize my legal skills for black like directly for black liberation right like mm -hmm. directly for the Detroit black community food security network because I was a part of DBC FSN um, when the pandemic hit actually I was so the last public thing that I went to before the shutdown was the DBC FSN meeting where they announced that I was joining the board okay mm -hmm. and then shut down so mm -hmm. you know as you know juneteenth was approaching and there were folks at dbc fsn talking to the folks that keep growing detroit and the folks at oakland avenue urban farm saying like there are some farmers that you know are not land secure right now right there are some black farmers in the city have been farming on land that they can't afford to buy mm -hmm. again for a variety of reasons the land bank has taken this land and driven up the prices etc cetera, etc cetera. and so we're concerned you know about the pandemic like we don't want this is not the time for this land to be pulled out from under these folks because mm -hmm. it's happened before right like people got crops people got plants and and the city's like well i mean we sold it so you know it's, it's mm -hmm. over and so and so that was and that was a conversation really that my you know my co-founder teb fira had really been having for a couple of years before the pandemic i'm sure hopefully she'll talk about talk with that about us talk with us about that thank you on the on the 28th but so that's how those three organizations came together to form the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund. Um, and so we thought we were like, well, let's try to raise like five thousand dollars for some of these black farmers. Right. You know, because, you know, you have side lots and neighborhood lots. So, you know, we were like five thousand dollars should, you know, can help a great amount of people. We raised like five thousand dollars in one day. I mean, it just, it just, and again, so, so this is also, it's the pandemic. It's Juneteenth, 2020. So also George Floyd would mm -hmm. have just been murdered, right? Like people mm -hmm. are still in the streets. People are still angry about this. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so I, I think it just, it was really a, a, a perfect time to, to really say like, we want to be able to invest in the, yes, we want to be able to invest in self-determination. We want people to be able to grow their own food. We want people to be able to provide fresh good produce to all of their community members who might be, you know, again, locked down, um, you know, not able to go, you know, do what they need to do. It's the pandemic. This is the beginning of the pandemic, right? Like people are terrified. Our elders are terrified. People are dying, right? Like Detroit hit, you know, I, I, I lost a friend during quote, right at the beginning of COVID. I mean, it was, it was, I remember it was, it was so bad. And it was just like, we, we want to make sure that, you know, we have to be able to provide fresh food for our people and how, what better way can we do that than by investing in the land security again an intergenerational black farmland ownership in the city of detroit right so so that was how all of that came together yeah. like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars later you know Eight. we're like we're so we're at this new level where we're we're growing as an organization right That's we're right. really excited to have an opportunity to shape this you know some of these you know policies for the city so that so Detroit can be as black and as green as we want it to be right mm -hmm. um, and and having the ability to you know bring people together and you know help them form you know co there are some there are some cooperatives of farmers that are starting to you know sell at Eastern Market um, there are some folks who are just 
transforming some of their communities. I mean, taking full city blocks and putting like hoop houses. And I mean, mm -hmm. it's just, it's phenomenal. There will be a, a video that we did this year that shows, uh, coming out in a couple of weeks, that shows some of these folks and like just the amazing things that they're cool. doing with vacant farmland in the city. That's cool. And mm -hmm. that's big. Um, so yeah, you all will be hearing more soon. Aaron, yes. that team, uh, Detroit Black Food Security Network. Mm -hmm. um, Black Farmer Land Fund, but yes, that too. Black yes. Farmer Land Fund. I mean, you know, we think of, of so many, uh, Mama Charity, like just so many people that, mm -hmm. you know, were anchors in this space. Absolutely. And, and um, The co-op, Detroit People's Food Co-op. So yes. if you're not a member, please. So, so many. Be a member. But now we, we get to the end. Um, if people want to get in contact with you, how do they reach out? Oh, um, I can be reached on my Instagram. My Instagram is Medicine Moon Mama. I'm okay. also a, and I'm that's a, all like spelled as it is. It, it's it's, it's spelled like it is in real it's life. Not, yes. Like, uh, you know, you know, we creative, you know, like I, I, MZZX. <laughs> I, I, I ask people all the time. I'm like, is your face? I'm like, is your Instagram name your real name? I'm like, or is it something else? Exactly. So, mm -hmm. so, um, so with that, now let's get into classic Detroit is different questions as we okay. wrap. And first one, very first car, year making model. What year did you get it? It was a GMC Jimmy. Okay. It was blue, and I got it in mm, ninety. I'm kind of dating myself here. Ninety something. Ninety eight. Must have been ninety eight. Okay. And where was the first place you went when you got it? I think I took my mom to get some ice cream. There you go. That's what I think. Cause she, she, my mom was like, my mom was also very no nonsense she was it wasn't like i was just getting in the car to like drive away like no mm -hmm. no no. she was like well she was like where are we going you know so. hilarious yep that That's was my mom up. uh you're the dj at the fireworks uh you get to play three songs Ooh. we're winning jefferson what songs you playing mm. wow that's a good that's a good question um oh my gosh i'm such a music head that like that also gives me I would probably want to play I'd probably play a Bob Marley song honestly probably war that's a good one um, that's always a good one especially when you got a lot of black people in one place right that's what I, that's what I'm thinking about what songs would I play um if I was playing for the fireworks jeez that's hard I'm trying to think of a good maybe like a good like solid like you and ITY right uh, Queen Latifah. Mm -hmm. um, I'd be forgetting about that sometimes, but I heard it on the radio the other day. <laughs> and um, and I'm trying to think, probably like a like a Detroit artist, like somebody. I would want to. I would want to play something. Maybe some. I mean, I really. I just kind of got into Bryce and all mm -hmm. of Bryce's stuff. So I mean, I really love. He performed at the Black Farmer Land Fund uh, mm -hmm. Farmers Market. So I really, I really love a lot of his stuff. Um, I feel like I need, of course, like, you know, when I think of Detroit, I always think of Anita Baker, right? And I'm a singer, but like, I don't, that's not a good thing to play at the fireworks. But I mean, she's still like just a classic singer. And I think that that's so important, especially now because we don't have a lot of that. And so I think there's a, there's a yearning for that. Mm -hmm. All right. And the, the classic non-Detroiter question <laughs> that I got to ask. Somebody visits from out of town. Where's the first place you take them? I would take. I would probably take them to Yum Village. I like Yum Village a lot. Okay. Um, I love that they do. They do African drumming on Thursday nights. Um, mm -hmm. I love. Of course, the food is good. Um, they have a bunch of like products in there. I love that you know Godwin's been able to expand. 
Um, so if I if I had to take them anywhere, and I mean like that's because it's on Woodward, right? So I think that one of the first things I tell out of towners about is, is is Woodward and how it's kind of like the main th thoroughfare and how it splits the east and the west and and all that. But so you know, being able to show that um, or be be there, I think is is kind of important too, even though it looks you know very different than it may have in the years past. Definitely, mm -hmm. that's powerful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for you want me to um what was I gonna say? Oh I didn't I didn't say Molly Wap yet. That was the only thing I didn't say. Molly Wap, mm -hmm. uh the newest vocalist Nine, in yes. the mix of Molly Wap and you'll be seeing Molly Wap perform at a lot of studios sometime soon. Yes. He, he working it out and then they're performing at something else. But you know, we support Molly Wap, the reggae mm -hmm. funk, so yep fusion experience that that is hip-hop i forgot g-mac is like Ugh. yep yep so it, it's down. that mix we love it so there we go thank you so much all right thank you detroit is different is where you get information artistry history music and even comedy detroit is different a home for the culture of detroit visit online at detroitisdifferent.com today